Good morning, everybody. It is great to see you this summer as we continue in the Word of God, as we continue to voyage uh, through the book of Acts. Thank you for all your prayers this past week. Um, for those joining us online as well in the house, um, it was just awesome to see all the kids back on camp, the big smiling faces, and, uh, and how happy they were to be a part of the things of the Lord. So thank you for your prayers um, for the week and, and everything that happened. The volunteers, leaders, thank you. You probably slept really well on Friday night. It's good to see you here this morning as we continue in Voyagers. Remember the rule of three, good, fast, and cheap. You can have good and you can have fast, but it won't be cheap. You can have fast and cheap, but it won't be good. Well, our rule of three for Voyagers is ready, willing, and able. You might be ready, but are you able? You might even be willing, but are you ready? And we're trying to combine all three because that's what a voyager is. A voyager is ready, fixing their eyes on the hope that's before them. They're, they're willing. They've counted the cost. They understand the sacrifices that might come. And, and the question is, are they able? Well, we're finding it relies upon whose strength you're relying on. But, but you say ready and willing and able to do what? Well, to take that leap of faith we've been talking about. How many of us are in a season of life where we've been pondering whether we're going to take the leap, whether we're going to go for it, whether we're going to fully trust God? And in order to do that, we've been leveraging faith throughout Scripture that we can learn from. And if you recall, we get, began with maybe faith. Jonathan and his armor bearer going over to the Philistine garrison for Jonathan says, hey, let's go. We know God doesn't want us hiding in fear. Let's move forward in faith. And he says, who knows? Maybe the Lord will deliver. Well, the Lord did deliver and him moving forward and maybe faith won the victory because fear is always asking, what will I lose? Where faith is asking, what will I gain? We, we continued on to the fiery furnace. We met Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're faced with either bowing down to this massive idol or being thrown in a furnace heated seven times. The king, in fury that they would not bow, says to them, who will deliver you? And they say, we do not have to answer you, for we know our God can deliver. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to turn, we're not going to bow to any other God. Furnace faith. Fear says, I'll jump, I'll jump, I'll jump, but only if, I need some affirmation here. How about this over here? I need this. If I have this, if I have this, if I have this, then I'll jump. Furnace faith says, even if I'm jumping. And they walked into the fire, and yes, the Lord delivered. And then last week, it was great to hear how many people were inspired by the faith of Nehemiah, who's on the wall being mocked, taunted, made fun of, only to watch the people on the wall who are working, feeling like they have to fight and work, and they're getting exhausted and growing tired. And Nehemiah stops everybody and says, hey, 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 remember. Remember the Lord is awesome. And he turns and he says to those who are telling him to come back down so they can put him into a plot that they're trying to destroy. Nehemiah, he says, I'm not coming off this wall. I have a great work to do, and I'm going to do this for the Lord. Fear is always going to rescind and, and say things like, I best just stop. I just, it's just getting too dangerous, getting too hard. I best just stop where faith always 
wants to resolve to say, I'm gonna finish the task that God has given me. Why? Because Nehemiah didn't have an itty bitty God. He had a massive God. And because of that, had an awesome faith. Well, well where today, Chris? Where are we going today? Well, let's go to one of the greatest accounts of all scripture, okay? I mean, this is one of those stories that, that is not missed on anybody. I don't think you're allowed to go to church and not have seen this on a felt board or a PowerPoint or something, okay? That is the story of none other than the young boy who had a coat of many colors. Who am I talking about? Joseph. And I want to talk today about a faith we're going to call a blameless faith. In fact, it's very hard in Scripture to find Joseph doing anything wrong. One of the very few characters, obviously outside of that of Jesus Christ, to live a life that's blameless before God. Well, no, is he perfect? Absolutely not. But he was walking as much as possible in blamelessness. Well, how did this all come about? Well, if you remember, Joseph was the boy that dad just loved. He loved him the most. In fact, it's recorded for scripture of all time that his dad loved him the most. And he got him a coat of many colors. Hello. And he put that thing on and he couldn't wait to show his brothers who were so excited for him. No, they weren't. They weren't excited at all. And they even grew less excited with Joseph when he shared with them that, hey, I had this dream. Brothers, come here. I had this dream. He gets all his older brothers together. And in this dream, there were all these sheaves and they were like bowing down. And my sheaf was standing up and, and all the sheaves were bowing down. And he names the amount of sheep, sheaves that were bowing down to him and it's the amount of his brothers. And they're like, you've got to be kidding me. Not only is this kid annoying, but he thinks we're going to bow down to him. He even shares it with dad. And dad's like, you think we're going to bow down to you? But dad's like, hmm, I wonder if we actually are someday. Well, this caused a little bit of dissension in the family, right? And so the brothers going out, out into the fields to work, are sent food from Joseph. And he comes to them with his coat. Guys, guys. And, and scripture says they're sitting around watching, watching this. I'm, I'm just going to add some flavor. Dork, right? Older brothers, here he comes, right? They just don't like him. I'm being nice. Because this isn't like sibling rivalry. They want to kill him. And so he's coming and they start plotting together. We should kill him and kill him. And fortunately, the older brother goes, come on, guys, we can't, we can't kill him. And they devise this plot. They're going to throw him into a pit. So they grab Joseph. Guys, I brought some food. Boom, throw him in. Where you got to be to throw your little brother into a pit? I mean, where you got to be? In fact, scripture tells us later in the account that the brothers, when they were going through something later in life, they were saying, oh man, we're paying for this because we heard Joseph screaming and we didn't do anything. They heard their little brother going, guys, guys. And so the older brother sticking up for him, let's not kill him because that was their plan. He said, let's sell them to this Midianite caravan that's coming along heading towards, let's, let's sell them, let's sell them. 
So they sell him, make some money off him, take his coat, put some blood on it, take it back to dad and say, I'm sorry, Joseph is dead. His father just falls apart emotionally. And these guys live with that? He's sold. And he's sold, betrayed, rejected, abandoned, and sold. And he ends up in this house of a man named Potiphar. Now, everything Joseph does while working for Potiphar just is blessed. Everything. It's like everything Joseph does, it's blessed. And Potiphar takes notice of this, and he ends up putting him in charge of his entire house. And Joseph reaches the pinnacle of his leadership and success, and everyone is noticing, including Potiphar's wife. And wife, his wife, notices that Joseph, Scripture calls, a very handsome man. Young ladies in here, Joseph was a stud. <laughs> and Potiphar's wife, I'm sure, was a looker herself, because I highly doubt, based on what I read about Potiphar, he selected her based on her character. <laughs> and she sees Joseph. And she comes to him. And isn't it always in isolation when the temptation is the greatest? And she makes her way towards him, noticing he was handsome in form and appearance. So Joseph's not only a stud, it sounds like Joseph's jacked. His form, look at this guy. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now, I'm sorry, she's not asking for a sleepover. She wants to sleep with him. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put me in charge of everything. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. And then he says one of the most memorable lines of all scripture, in my opinion. He says, how can I do this thing? Come on, it's Potiphar's wife, man. Just do it. You don't need, you don't need, you don't need to get thrown back into a pit. I mean, look what God's done for you. He, he's barely stepped up for you, Joseph. You've been in a pit. You might as well have a little fun. You deserve to be happy. Joseph is here in the spot. You, you can imagine the different things that might go through someone that's wounded from such a young age that's been betrayed and rejected, all the justifications that might come up. None of that occurs in Scripture. None of it. I mean, come on, Joseph. You can't do this. You'll lose your position. You'll do that. Just, just, hey, look, we all know it's wrong, but just like do what you got to do. I mean, man, it's good business. Joseph says, how could I do such a thing and sin against, and you're ready. You're reading it going, he's going to say, and sin against Potiphar. I mean, Potiphar believed in him. Potiphar elevated him to a high place. Can't do that to Potiphar. That's not what he says. Joseph says, how could I do this and sin against God? You see, for Joseph, it wasn't about whether he could get away with it. For Joseph, it wasn't even whether he, he could maybe hide this because he doesn't really have to worry about Potiphar's wife tweeting this tomorrow. 
We're in the first century here, okay, right? And she's a powerful woman. She has the ability to destroy Joseph if he doesn't just go through it. I mean, it just makes, in some ways, good sense to kind of sneak this through. I mean, kind of, let's just get this done. I mean, I know it's wrong to cheat, but I need an A. You don't understand. I need an A. I, I know I shouldn't, but you know what? You don't even understand what I've been through. I know, I know no one will find out, but so, so I think I can hide this. I'll just take this to my grave. We, we come up with all these different thoughts. Joseph said, I'm not sleeping with you. Not because of Potiphar, but because he's watching. And I don't want to invite my God into that room. Because I'm a child of his. So everywhere I go, he goes. And so everything I do, you ready for this, child of God? He sees me doing it. And all of a sudden, Joseph changes the whole perspective of public sin and private sin because he just made private sin public. And Joseph says, I can't do it. And you know what Potiphar's wife does? She comes at him and comes at him and comes at him until one day she says, lie with me. And she grabs his cloak and he takes, he just runs. He just runs. And she, she's standing there with his cloak. She's like, what does she do now? She ripped the guy's cloak off. We don't know what Joseph looked like. Let's keep going on the story. But she has his cloak. She goes back to Potiphar. She says, look, your, your servant tried to make sport of me. Potiphar enraged. Throw Joseph into prison. Come on, God. Prison? The kid did what was right. You mean we, we sometimes will pay for it even when we do the right thing? Oh, uh, yeah, maybe in the world's eyes. And so he's in prison. If you know the story, everything he did in prison went well. Until the prison guard goes, how about you just run this prison? And he's basically running it until one night the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Egypt has this dream and he doesn't quite understand it. He says, is there anybody who can interpret dreams? And people are like, oh my word, Joseph. So they go to the prison, they bring Joseph out. He stands before Pharaoh, Pharaoh, not Potiphar, Pharaoh of Egypt. And Pharaoh says, here's my dream. And Joseph goes, I understand this dream. What you're seeing is seven years of wealth and abundance and then seven years of famine. And Pharaoh's thinking. He goes, what you need to do, Joseph, you need to store up, store up grain, store this up because a, a famine's coming and you need to store it up so you're ready. And Pharaoh goes, this is brilliant. You're in charge, Joseph. And now Joseph is second in command of all Egypt. And his brothers are experiencing the famine in their country. And their father tells them to travel to Egypt, for there is this man in charge who now goes by a different name. And he has food that he has stored up in his storehouses. And so they come, and they come running up, who they don't realize is Joseph, and they all do what? Bow down before him. Joseph sees it's his brothers. Do you know in scripture it records three times he has to run out of the room and cry? He is second in command. If somebody hosed you or cheated you or betrayed you and then you became the dog, what are you going to do? Oh, we're going to have fun. Isn't that how we often are? Not Joseph. In fact, Joseph puts him to the test a little bit. He does. 
but he gets to a point where he makes him bring back Benjamin. He looks at Benjamin, and Scripture says Joseph's hand, and he runs and has to go cry and come back into the room. He finally tells them, I'm your brother, and gets to see his father. Now second in command of all Egypt. You know, you look at Joseph's life, and outside that of Jesus Christ, you'll be hard-pressed to find someone who lived a life where he was literally vilified, manipulated, lied about, and slandered, yet did nothing wrong. And although he was humbled and thrown into a pit, God highly exalted him where his name was above every other name. Sound familiar? And that's why Joseph is referred to in theology as a type of Christ. And what that means is when you look at the story of Joseph, you are supposed to see the redemptive story of Jesus Christ. And what did he have that we want to point out? He had a blameless faith. Why? Because it wasn't okay for Joseph to just not commit the sin. Joseph didn't even want to think about the sin because he knew that God was in his head and knew his thoughts and knew his emotions and knew what he was going through. He said, I don't want to sin before God. So today, I want to inspire us to live with a blameless faith. You say, Chris, you don't know my life. I've made far too mistakes to be blameless before God anymore. That was me putting on the brakes. You must not know my forgiving God then. I hope to introduce him to you. Because although there may be ramifications for the rest of your life for decisions you made, you actually can stand forgiven before the forgiving God. And that's the beauty of Jesus Christ. It's the beauty of Christianity. We have a heavenly father who forgives us. Anybody need forgiveness in the room? I'll raise my hand. Let's find out not only how to find it today, but let's find out how to pursue a blameless faith as we watch the Apostle Paul under trial today. Heavenly Father, as we voyage into a blameless faith, I pray that this series will continue to inspire us to have a faith that holds up today under temptation. For temptations are all around us. In fact, one of the reasons Jesus was on earth, he said, I can sympathize with what we go through. And there are times where people in this room right now, they have fallen to temptation. Lord, we want to be blameless before you, but we're going to have to come clean. But may we be inspired to live a life like Joseph. And I pray that in some ways this sermon will serve as a preemptive measure for someone who might be tempted to privately do something they know they shouldn't. Use this sermon, Lord, in your name we pray, amen. Now, we all know where we left off. If you were here last week, I'm sorry if I'm annoying you with, you'll have to come back next week, but thank you for coming back next week. Thank you, I appreciate that. And so we, we, let's, open up our, let's open up our journal here a little bit and see where we're at. There was a midnight ride. Remember the Tribune? He's gotta keep the peace. And he called on the centurions and he said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 100 spearmen and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote, a letter to this effect. Oh, what did he write? What did you write to Felix? Let, let's get it out and take a look at it. He writes, Claudius Lysias, 
to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen, I mean, we can't punish a Roman citizen, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council, and I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. And so we see the governor Felix, who is a monster of a man, he's not a good man, sends him, excuse me, the tribune sends him to this Felix who now gets this letter and has Paul in front of him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And on reading the letter, Felix reads the letter. Okay, this guy had a plot against him. We don't know if these charges can hold up. He asked, Paul, what province are you from? And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, it motivates him to do something. Now, now you remember, if you've been walking along with us, it's important what town you come from, okay? Just like some people like leverage different colleges they were from as if they're you know, in, in different categories, and, and maybe they are, but we, we leverage them that way. We have higher respect for like, oh, the Harvard or Stanford or something like that. Well, Cilicia was that. If you came from Cilicia, I mean, that's a pretty big deal. That's why you hear in scripture things like, can anything good come from Nazareth? A town means something. And he's from Cilicia. Now, let me bring in some historical background that's gonna juice this text up a little bit so it's not just like, and then it came from, if you read scripture like that, just call me up, I'll try to help, okay? From a province he was from and then learned. No, this is awesome. Here's what's going on. If Paul came from an area or a situation in the empire that had its own ruler, which Cilicia does, then authority had the right from that area to come and be a witness at the proceedings. Here's what, here's what he's doing. I'm gonna make your accusers show up. So he says, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded Paul to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Now, any of you familiar with Herod's praetorium? Let, let me get a little excited again. Herod's praetorium was awesome, okay? I mean, it was a massive seaside, let's just call it massive beach house, okay? And there, it was everything. It was everything you could ever imagine. And Herod had harbors coming in. Boats would come in. He could sit. Uh, Herod's Praetorium was awesome, but it also had prison cells in it. For he, he was a, a vicious ruler at times. And so... If you think about this, uh, this praetorium and this awesome seaside place, I mean, he's got some cash money, young people, okay? That's what he's got. And he's got this huge spread, okay? I mean, awesome place. And here, here, just so you understand, you're not reading a book of fiction, as the world likes to call it sometimes, okay? This is actually where this is taking place. This is ruins of Herod's 
Praetorium, okay? And so you can see it's situated right on the sea here, okay? This is where the castle was out front, and there were these awesome, awesome, like, places and porticos where they were out by the water. You could watch the waves. And then back in here were courtyards, waterfalls, swimming pools everywhere. But right up here is where they believe. Right in this area up here is where they believe a lot of the prisoners were kept, that were kept in this praetorium. Up in here, and they were given some freedom even up in here. It wasn't all just chains and stuff. They were given some freedom. But, but here's something that's interesting. If you love the writings of Paul, throughout the New Testament, you hear Paul talking about athletics a lot. Have you ever noticed that? It's like Paul was an athlete. I don't swing like a boxer beating the air. He'll say things like, I buffet my body and make it my slave so that I might always preach to others. In a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Have you ever heard all these things? Uh, bodily discipline has value, but godliness has dis uh, value. For it's like Paul constantly had these athletic metaphors in his head. Well, I want you to see something. If you can make it out on the screens, if his cell is like right here, look how close he is to what's called the hippodrome. Hippodrome was the athletic arena. And then when you get the understanding that during this imprisonment, Paul wrote books like Philippians, it's believed, even Philemon, you start imagining him writing and hearing the roars of the crowd out of his window. <sighs> In a race, not all the runners. And you realize when you get a better view of this visually, the Bible just comes to life. And he's in the seaside home. He, he's close to this hippodrome. He's, he's in this area. And, and after five days, the high priest Ananias, Ananias, excuse me, he comes with some elders and a spokesman, one to Turles. Oh, no. Not to Turles. Did you read about him in your devotions this week? No? Okay, I'll help you. To Turles is like one of the best trial lawyers of the time. They're calling in the big dogs. They're not just going, Paul's done some wrong things. They're going to try to take him down. And what really raises my attention is the fact it says five days. That means they flat hustled when they found out. Because remember, Paul escaped by this midnight ride. They have found out where he is, and they're coming in hot, angry, mad, and not only on top of that, the high priest didn't send his people. He's going himself. The president of the company's not coming. He's sending his people to accuse you. The president of the company is walking in himself going, I'm accusing them and I brought my best, my very best lawyer. He's a spokesman. If you carry this word down into the Greek, that word carries the idea of rhetoros or attorney is where we get a word from that. Skillful in oratory. And, and challenging and accusing. And Tertullus is just that. And they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, and listen to this. Since through you, Governor Felix, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Okay, Felix was a monster killing people. These weren't nice reforms. Tutorialist is doing the flattery game. Have you ever seen this? I'm going to flatter him 
and prepare him. Whenever you want to appeal to an arrogant person, you appeal to their ego. Hey, man, you're awesome. Can I just get five minutes of your time? Oh, yeah, I think I am awesome. You can have five minutes of my time. That's exactly what's going on here. But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly. We understand you're busy. I'll be brief. And he lays out three savage charges. For we have found this man, Paul must be standing there, we have found this man to be a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Remember the dagger men that were killing Romans? He's saying he's the leader of it. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Um, actually, Tertullus, you guys set up a plot and tried to kill him. That sounds nice. You seized him. But if it weren't for the tribune, Paul would be dead. Tertullus is leaving that out. We don't need all the details. Remember, he is an incredible attorney. Now, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews that are present, Scripture says, they joined in with the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Now, here's what's intriguing about this. If you understand Roman law, if Paul has done something sacrilegious in the temple, there is an ability to now put him to death. So Tertullus has set up a charge that will just steer Felix right into where he wants him because he's brilliant. Folks, I wrote something in my notes about ready, willing, and able. Voyagers need to be ready, sadly, to be vilified. They need to be ready to be vilified. Paul has done nothing wrong. Paul has not even done the things that they're charging with. They have interpreted Paul's actions to fit a narrative that will benefit and make it look like Paul is the villain, when in fact he's not. Folks, there are times as a voyager for Jesus Christ that you will be called the hater for what you believe when you've done no hating that you will become the villain when all you've done is stood for what Jesus told you to do. And you go, how am I the villain? How come everybody's coming at me when all I'm trying to do is stand up for what I believe? See, a voyager isn't surprised by that. A voyager understands there's gonna be seasons in my life, they're not fun, but there will be seasons in my life where I'm vilified for doing the right thing. Even for doing the right thing, when you could have done the wrong thing and just mixed in. I had a chance to talk to uh, an anchor for a news station. He said, Chris, I, I had a big break and I was gonna be able to move from my news station and take a show that I had been working on. It was my baby, I developed this show and I was gonna get to take it to the largest Christian TV network, not in the United States, but in the world. And I had a meeting set up where I was going to meet with the presidents of the company and I was going to show them the show and I had everything lined up, but I had to make sure I had a producer. He said, but man, it was just so rough because my producer, who was a friend of mine, he just kept making wrong choice after wrong choice after wrong choice. And he was starting to turn to different things, substances, and he was starting to not be faithful with his wife. And he's like, I called him. I said, man, we got to talk. 
I just see you going a path, man, that's not you. And he said, I tried to converse with him and it actually got worse. I didn't get where I wanted to get. And he goes, and it was just, I was moving forward going, I don't think I can stay in this relationship in a business relationship with this part. I mean, I, and he's like, I, I just felt this weight on me. Like the Holy Spirit just saying, this isn't right. This isn't right. This isn't gonna bring, but, but I mean, I got this meeting. I've got this meeting coming up. I mean, I got a, I mean, I got a family to feed, right? I mean, we gotta make decisions. We gotta do these things. And, and if I let go of my producer this close, I mean, I could lose this opportunity. He said, but I, I couldn't get past it. And finally, I just said, I tried to in love, but I said, hey man, this, this isn't gonna work. I said, hey man, this isn't gonna work. And I went, God, here I come. This was so stupid of me to do this right before the meeting. And God worked in the 11th hour for him. He shared this with someone else who happened to have what he needed. And the Lord provided even right before the plane took off another producer. So when he landed, he was able to say in good faith, I have a producer. He said, but then Chris, it got ugly. There was anger from what I, I felt I had to do. And all of a sudden I became the villain. I began to get accused and attacked and vilified stories people were believing that weren't true. And he said, I just had to entrust it to God because this narrative was out there that I was the monster. And, and he said, one of my anger verses during that time was this, no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment will be condemned. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And the vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Isaiah 54, 17. Now, now I understand context. That is talking about something different in Isaiah, but I can verify this passage with the words of Jesus Christ. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You do the right thing, even if it ends up costing you. I got you. I'm watching. But, but what if I'm thrown into prison? What if I, like, people will vilify me and I did nothing wrong? He entrusted it to the Lord, and the Lord provided. Paul is standing there to Turles, the great attorney's going, I charge him guilty. And Paul says, when the governor nods to him, okay, Paul, your turn, Paul replies, knowing that for many years you have been the judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Not as much flattery, but at least he says, I cheerfully make my defense. Paul, how can you be cheerful? Here, here's why, here's why. When an honest man is under attack, he has nothing to fear. When a guilty man is under attack, he has everything to fear. But honesty don't fear a fight. And so Paul goes, I cheerfully make my defense. And he continues. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up into worship in the Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or the synagogues or the city. So Tertullus, I'm not a plague. I've been here 12 days simply worshiping and I haven't done anything. He goes, neither can you prove, neither can they prove to you that the charges they bring up against me. But this I confess to you that according to the way, that's what they called it, the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. I'm not out on some crazy train. 
I'm following scripture, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept. I guarantee you he pointed to the Pharisees because the Sadducees, including Ananias, would not accept that. And he says, and that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. I believe there's a resurrection. I believe I live beyond this life. And I believe I will stand before my creator one day and give account for the life I've lived. That's what Paul says. I'm going to give an account for this. So based on that, I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man, which tells me there are times Paul doesn't have a clear conscience and feels he's got to get it right. I'm not feeling right. I take pains. It's difficult for me, but because I'm going to know, I know I'm going to stand before Jesus one day at the judgment seat of Christ, I'm going to seek to live with a clear conscience. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tollment. I came to bring an offering for the Jews and the Christian church. I'm trying to give them the offering. I had also, uh, I had alms, that were the alms, and I had offerings that I'm presenting for these four guys I brought into the temple. And I'm not doing anything that they're saying. He continues. But some of the Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make any accusation. He just drops in there. If you're going to make an accusation, see, Paul's not stupid with Roman law. If you have to make an accusation about somebody, you actually have to be there at the moment of the trial in the Roman law. In fact, it was a heinous thing to accuse somebody of something, and then when the trial came, you didn't show up and you abandoned the charge. For it says something very loudly, you know the charges aren't gonna stick. They just wanted to taunt and accuse and abuse. They didn't wanna show up there in the moment. And so Paul says, you know they ought to be here. And I'm sure Felix is going, yeah, actually they should, Paul, you're right. And so they, they, they brought this up against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Let them talk themselves. They really don't have a case here other than this one thing. Have you ever gone, look, I have done nothing wrong. Okay, well, there's like this one thing. I probably shouldn't have done that. Even Paul has those moments. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Paul goes, other than this one thing, I did cry out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Okay, I knew they were Pharisees and Sadducees, and I knew if I said that, they'd fight each other. Outside of that, I did nothing wrong. But Felix, having an accurate knowledge of the way, he put them off, saying, when I say yes, the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. A stall tactic. I'll wait for the tribune. Delay the trial. Keep it moving down the road. Then they gave orders to the centurion and he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and, and, none of his, and, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So, so let's put him in custody, but let's not make it so sad, so, so hard, but let's put him away. And so Paul is thrown back into a prison cell. I wrote in my notes, not only we need to be ready to be vilified at times, we're gonna have to be willing to even be cast aside. Paul stands up, says, I've done nothing wrong, and yet he's the one who goes back to prison and his accusers go out for an evening party. There's times when we stand up 
and we do something we believe God's called us to do, and believe it or not, the world don't like it, and they cast you aside. I remember getting a phone call, young couple, she had just gotten this great job. She said, my husband and I were talking about this, Chris, I just wanna run this by you. What's your thoughts on this? And I was listening. She said, I just got this job. We need this job. My family needs this job. It's a good job. But they're asking me to do something I'm really uncomfortable with, and we're going back and forth with it, and we, we kind of don't know what to do. Um, they're asking me to go around to the different um, branches or buildings or whatever that the company owns and pretend I'm somebody else, especially because I'm new to the company, and just kind of go in there and try to do different things and see how they handle it. I said, oh, kind of like a secret shopper kind of thing? Yeah, but I actually have to impose as other people. Like I have to give a different name. I have to do these different things and they have different names for me and stuff that I'll go in as. I'm like, oh. And she's like, and I live in this community. Like if I go into this place and I'm like, I'm so-and-so from such and such a place and and it's all lies. What if they see me in church the next week? Like what if they see me in town and I'm by a different name? I mean, I'm really uncomfortable with what this could do, especially for my testimony, being, a, being Christians. They were very concerned about that. And you begin to see their struggle, but we need this job. I'm like, well, the best thing you can do is go in and tell them you're struggling and why you're struggling and let them hear it. I kind of have. Not changing? Not really. And then you do what every pastor does in those moments. Well, what are you going to do? No, no, you don't have- But you do have to come to a decision, hey, if you can't do this with a clear conscience, you really shouldn't. I really have, oh, and she didn't. And she said, they didn't fire me, but I might as well have been fired because I didn't get really any opportunities and it wasn't long before I knew I was gonna have to change jobs. And she says, now I have the best job ever. I'm so glad I'm not there. That's often how the Lord works. But there's that moment where the Lord goes, yeah, yeah, you could just, I mean, who's going who's gonna to find out? Who's going to find out? And you're like, oh, oh, but Lord, we really need the money. We really need to do. And you're going to have these times in your life, but I really need to get, I just need to pass God. What's one, how about I cheat just a little bit? Or, or, or oh, I'll just do this. Or though nobody will notice if I do this. And I'll just cut the corner just a little bit on my taxes. Here, oh, no, I just, I mean, who's going to, it's at that moment where you go, no, I'm not going to. And I'll probably pay. I mean, everybody else is doing it. I know everybody else is doing it. Everybody else is doing it, God. And I'm going to just, okay, I'm not going to do it. And you jump. And you have no choice but to go, I have nobody left to count on except. And God's like, there's my girl. There's my guy. And we jump. And sometimes it feels like we jump and boom, we hit the floor. Thanks, God. But it's often when I've hit the floor, stay with me. It's often when I've hit the floor where God exposes all of Chris's pride. And he says, now we ready? And he gets me back up. You ever been there? Because I got no choice, God. Sometimes voyagers have to be willing to be cast aside. And if I pulled the room, I bet I got a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ who have kind of been shafted because they did the right thing. 
After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. I love this. You're starting to hear Christian language come out of Acts. It starts with the way. Who are these people of the way? And now as we've worked our way towards the end of Acts, you hear things that we're used to saying. Oh, his faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul, in prison, is now sharing his faith with Felix. I'm following you, God. And he brings Drusilla, who at that time was about 19 years old, people believe. She was the third wife of Herod Agrippa I. It was his third wife because Felix married for political advantages. And now Paul's sharing the gospel with two of them. And as he reasoned to them about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. I'm willing to talk about the Bible. I'm willing to talk about theology, but don't you start telling me how to live my life. Get out of here. Isn't that interesting? How many people can come to church and go, I'm willing to talk about all I know about the Bible. And then the Bible says, yeah, but we shouldn't do that. We go, hey, don't, 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 wait. Felix goes, go away for the present. And when the opportunity comes, I'll, I'll summon you. And so he sent for him often and conversed with him. He just wants to know more. But there was something Luke added. I put it in small font. It says this, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. Felix, you dog. He's even listening to the gospel going, hopefully I get some money from Paul or hopefully I can keep him in prison long enough where somebody will give me some money for his release. I wrote in my notes, wow, every time Paul's thrown in prison, there's a purpose. And I begin to look at my trials now a little bit more as, is this a prison of purpose? Is this happening in my life for a reason? Please don't mistake Please don't mistake trials and consequences. Trials occur based on nothing we've done. That's part of being here on earth. In this world, you will have trouble. Consequences are based on behavior we've done. If you go into a bank, shoot a gun and go, I'm robbing it, and get thrown into a prison cell, and it's a terrible inmate who's calling you names, you can't go, God, why did you do this to me? Okay, you put yourself there. And how often are we putting ourselves there? But with a trial, it's coming out of nowhere. And Paul, being thrown in prison for extended time periods, he's being renovated for future usefulness. That's where God often uses us to strike. How does that change your work week knowing tomorrow? Oh, I hate my job. It's like a prison. Maybe it's a prison of purpose. Oh, I hate 11th grade. I don't want to do 11th grade. Maybe 11th grade is going to even be a prison of purpose. Maybe even the most difficult thing you're going through, God has you right there because there's somebody that if you weren't there, you wouldn't share the gospel with. I listened to an older man at a wedding just this past weekend look at me and say, I know why I got shingles. Why? So I'd be in the hospital to share the gospel with somebody I came in contact with. I said, Wow. I don't got a hospital of purpose, but we could change the slide. A prison of purpose. And so how long was Paul in jail? For two years. It had elapsed. Felix was succeeded by Parsha's Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor. No way, no way. Felix left Paul in prison. A political pawn. Paul is left in prison. Paul... To Paul's credit, how many of you, if you were thrown into prison multiple times, go, God, really? Like, I'm seriously trying to live for you. Really? In prison again? You never hear Paul complain about it. 
How many of us are living the, hi, hey, Jesus loves you. God, I can't believe you're doing this to me. I can't even believe. And we're, and we're privately complaining. And Joseph goes, oh, oh, I want to let you know you're doing that actually in front of God. He's listening. You're not hiding that complaining spirit. Oh, man, what will happen to Paul? Will he be able to navigate this? Well, we'll find out next week, right? We can't find out this week because it's time to apply this passage. I mean, we have been challenged here to are we going to be able to stand up in court and go, man, Lord, I want to be blameless before you. I mean, we're all tempted to have private, secret, quiet little sins that we can take to our grave. But Joseph is an incredible reminder. He says, how could I do this and sin against God? We're calling it a blameless faith. A blameless faith. Well, well I just, what, 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 everything we do, every decision we make, every time we're deciding whether we're going to leap towards a blameless faith, we're going to fight fear and we're going to fight faith, right? Are we going to operate in fear? Are we going to operate in faith? Fear, we learned this from this story. Fear falls to temptation. Fli- faith, what does it do? It flees. Fear falls into temptation. Faith flees temptation. See, God doesn't tell us in scripture. He doesn't tell us in scripture. Hey, I want you to open the internet, guys, by yourself at 2 a.m. And just like, don't go to those sites. Just see how close you can get. And then like try to, no. He says, flee. James tells us, flee temptation. Run. Why? Because you'll fail. So get out of there. Joseph, he stays here any longer. He's going to fail. Get out of there. And he runs. Fear falls into temptation with its eyes wide open usually. And fear flees from temptation. Fear, fear doesn't want to fail people. I mean, my boss says I have to do this. And my boss is big and massive and rules the world. If your God is little, if you got an itty bitty God, then he's big and scary and in control of your whole life, right? But if you have a massive God, fear, when it says, don't fail people, faith says, don't fail God. See, see, fear doesn't want to fail people. Faith doesn't want to fail God. He's watching. I don't want to fail him. Fear, fear says, no one else is going to see this. Faith says, God will see this. Fear, fear strives to live a double life. So fear does, hey, we could probably do this and then we'll do this and then faith strives to live an honest life. Fear, fear is looking to justify. I deserve it. I mean, after all, you understand what I have to put up with? Fear always loves to justify. Faith always wants to glorify. A, A verse that has really inspired me to want to live with a clear conscience before God, which means Something has to occur, and I'm going to show you before we leave today. It's this verse. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be made known or brought out into the open. I had a strong brother in Christ say to me, Chris, get right with God every day. Would you rather be humbled by him or humiliated? For there is nothing 
hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. I've said, Lord, I'm not perfect. How do I preach a message on blamelessness when I'm not blameless and I know there's no one in the room that is blameless? Oh, what? Jesus is. And if I'm his child, that means I've accepted his forgiveness. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I made that commitment, have you? Because if you have and said, Jesus, be my savior, be my Lord, be my master, you have submitted to a sovereign, awesome, powerful, mighty, yet loving, and you're ready? The thing that separates Christianity from everything? A forgiving God. He forgives you. What? Yeah, he forgives you. And he offers his forgiveness to you. When you call on his name, you are positionally forgiven, which means a child of God is forgiven no matter what they do for the rest of their life. Aren't I supposed to ask for forgiveness? Absolutely. But what you're asking for is relational forgiveness. See, see, my children are my kids positionally, whether they disagree with me or disobey me or not. But when they do disobey me or do something I not like them to do, there has to be a restoration in the relationship, even though positionally it's there. As a child of God, you've been forgiven, but he calls on you to get right with him, live a blameless life. And good news, you can do that today, even if you walked in here grime, because guess what? We're all the same dirt under the cross. Amen. There ain't nobody who's like, I'm a little bit better dirt though. I think than that. No. We're all the same dirt. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But with Christ, we can ask for forgiveness and purification. Really? Yeah. How? Well, let's ask somebody who didn't flee. Let's ask the man who didn't flee, but in fact saw a woman bathing naked, said, I'd like to have that, brought her to himself, slept with her, had a child, found out she's got a husband, had the husband killed. I don't think anybody did that in here. Had somebody killed to hide his sin. And Nathan comes up to him and goes, David, what would you do if you found out somebody did that? David said, I'd kill the man. And David could. David could kill anybody who's a vicious warrior. Don't, don't fall in love with the heart boy. He was a warrior as well. And David said, I'd kill that guy. And Nathan goes right back to David. goes, you're the man. Nathan knows. Yeah, because God told Nathan, go talk to my boy David. And Nathan walked in and said, you did this and God saw it. And David gets out Psalm 51 and he starts writing. And the first thing he does, I call it the purity prayer. He says this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your love, not according to mine. I betrayed you according to your abundant mercy. God, would you have mercy on me? Here's what you're asking for. God, would you treat me in a way I don't deserve? Would you have the people I hurt forgive me? And I, they're, they're probably not going to. Would you have mercy? Would you, all the things I've done, the ramifications, would you have mercy on the people that I've hurt? Would you have mercy on me? And then, and then David says, could, could I ask for your forgiveness? Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. It's a big word, kids, for sin. Cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse it. He can do it. He can cleanse you. Moms, I wish we could cleanse our kids or our husbands or our wives. I wish we could cleanse, but we can't. Ladies, you can't 
cleanse your husband. Husbands, you can't cleanse your wife. They have to do it. Kids, kids, you might be living in a rough situation. You, can't, you can intercede for them, but they have to call in prayer and ask for forgiveness. Blot out my transgressions. Then he says, he says, I got a dirty conscience. He wants a clean conscience. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's like David says, I walk around and my sin is everywhere I go. How you doing, man? It's good to see you today. Hey, awesome, awesome, awesome. And he lives with this, this, I know what I did. And I know of people, hey man, good to see you, good to see you. David goes, I gotta get this out of here. I can barely concentrate. He says, for I know my sin and my sin is ever before me. He's got a dirty conscience. God, God, forgive me. I'm coming to you. I'm coming clean. And apologize to God. I love this. Forgive me for the, the basic English, but just say sorry, God, I'm sorry. You know how much that means to me as an earthly father when my kid goes, dad, I'm sorry. Thank you. That, that, that felt really good. That was all I actually needed to hear. God, I'm sorry. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He said, forget Bathsheba. I did wrong by her. Forget Uriah. I did wrong by her. But, but God, at the end of the day, I did this to you. I took you in the room. I brought her in the room. You were right in the room. I brought you there. I apologize, God. And then he humbles himself. God, my, my life stinks right now. I feel heavy. I'm broken. But you know what? You, you restore broken bones. So, so would you break me? Uh, I mean, how many times when we're caught for something, when we've done something, we just kind of broken before him. Humble yourself. This is what you're supposed to do. And then can, he goes, okay, I'm calling for renewal. The Holy Spirit does that. Create me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit in me. I may not have people who forgive me just yet, God, but I need your forgiveness or I can't even move forward. And then he invites restoration. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Help me to follow through on this. Do you remember when you first got saved? How excited you were? David's going, bring it back. I want that back. Some kid was brought by her mom today. They came, I mean, during camp this week and I was standing, sitting there on the couch. They came up, somebody has something they want to tell you. I went, what do you want to tell me? Did you get saved this week? Oh yeah. I was like, you know what that means? Look at me. You're going to go to heaven. And you get to live with me for eternity. <laughs> eh? If you don't like me that much, I'm sorry. If you're a child of God, we're together for a long time. Come on, remember when you smiled about being a believer? Remember when you, your joy was full? David says, I want that back. And as long as I'm living in sin with this guiltiness, guys, get it done today. Don't go to bed tonight. Pray through Psalm 51. Ladies, pray through Psalm 51. Teenager, you don't have to live miserable. You don't. Little child out there, when every time I preach, you go, that's me, I'm a terrible Christian. Jesus loves you despite anything you've ever done wrong because you're his child. And there's nothing you could ever do to make him love you less. And that includes the complete failure if that's what the enemy's told you. Heavenly Father, if there's anybody here today, I don't know what's going on in this room, but maybe somebody was brought in here because you wanted to talk to him. Talk to him, Lord. Pull up a chair beside him and say, it does have to be like this. But you don't understand, God, this person, this person, whoa, 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 whoa. Fear wants to make people happy. Faith wants to make God happy. It starts with me. 
And when you change within, mom, dad, teen, college student, senior state, when you start changing within, we got to trust God with the ramifications of what we've done. But we can start afresh today. We don't have to live in resentment. We don't have to live in bitterness. The enemy wants to destroy us. The enemy is your enemy. We don't fight against flesh and blood. And he's trying to ruin lives, Lord. I pray in your name, we don't let him win and we get right before you. For there ain't anybody perfect in this room, but because of your great grace, we can all be forgiven. Amen.